once again remind us that we are really at a historic turning point in the history of women's leadership, in the history of a global women's movement. And this institute, which coincides with world leaders coming together at the UN General Assembly's 73rd session, looks at inclusion in innovation and entrepreneurship and business. But it's also a festival of ideas. I think of this as the Aspen Ideas Festival. We are bringing together extraordinary leaders, extraordinary thinkers, extraordinary doers in the margins of UN General Assembly's 73rd General Assembly. And as I mentioned in the morning, two of the seven themes that are being articulated at the UN General Assembly include the future of jobs and the future of innovation in jobs and gender equality. So this program really is about bringing those ideas together and looking at inclusion, inclusion in its full richness in innovation and in business. So you have Carolyn's bio with you, so I'm not going to um, articulate that more, but I want to share with you a quick story about how we came together. 65 years ago, 12 white women were the trailblazers at Harvard Law School. It was only 65 years ago that Harvard Law School opened its doors to women, and there were 12 white women. 65 years later, a group of us came together as co-chairs to reimagine what Harvard Law School should look like 65 years after those first 12 trailblazers opened the doors for all of us. And Caroline Egger and I were co-chairs, and for the first time, Celebration 65's program really looked at the richness of the diversity and the inclusion of women at Harvard Law School. So I want to share this story with you, but given the fact that this program today is about asking hard questions, difficult questions of inclusion in innovation and in investment, I want to start by asking a few hard questions. And the Harvard <coughs> Business Review asks a hard question just in its last, um, uh, <coughs> last review. Harvard Law's or Harvard Business Review's research reveals that a startling lack of diversity among the leaders of Fortune 500 companies. Just 32 are women and just three are African American and not one is an African American woman. What's going on? Secondly, you know how difficult it is to establish legal or political concepts to create new vernacular when none is present. You know that it was only in the 1990s that Catherine McKinnon and Anita Hill established the new legal norm of sexual harassment. It was only in the early 2000s that Kimberly Crenshaw established a new legal norm, a new political and social norm of intersectionality. And today we have with us Caroline Edgar, who helped to establish a new political norm, a new social norm of emotional tax, emotional tax for women of color in business. So Caroline Edgar is one of those women leaders and thought leaders who really helped to name something that was invisible, something that existed but had not been given name to before. And this was done through her work with the Catalyst Research, as well as the Harvard Law School study on the status of black alumni in uh, the legal profession. So my last question to Carolyn is, when African-American women are underrepresented in an organization's senior leadership roles, despite, despite academic credentials and work experiences, what does it say about the workplace's general health? It's the lack of leadership or the conspicuous absence of women of color in leadership positions speaks to the health, the broader health of the organization. It is, that is just a symptom of what is wrong. 
And then finally, Caroline, my, my question to you is, as someone who has been at the table at the highest levels of leadership in some of corporate America's top positions, the only way for a woman to be at the table is if there is someone else who says that person deserves an opportunity, a raise, a global assignment, and an acknowledgement. And you have had several people who have said that, and you continue to be that person for others, uh, whether it's women of color or all other women. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to speak on those issues, but speak to the data, the statistics, and your story in a way that addresses the questions that I've asked you. Thank you, Caroline, for being with us. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start with this cartoon because we have it up on the screen. And I think this cartoon really illustrates in a very vivid visual way what we mean when we talk about the emotional tax. And the, the point here isn't to relitigate whether Serena Williams acted appropriately or not at, you know, during her US Open loss. Because regardless of what you think about what happened that day, a cartoonist for an Australian newspaper, the Herald Sun, decided to depict her in a very particular way, drawing upon stereotypes of black women that basically dehumanizes her. So if you look at, at this image of her, he's drawn her you know, with, with humongous lips. He's drawn her like eight times her, her, her actual size. He's actually completely whitewashed her opponent, who was a very proud multiracial Haitian Japanese woman, and made her a, a thin blonde white woman. And, you know, is depicting Serena basically in the context of, you know, the, the Sambo and the Mammy and all of these horrible dehumanizing stereotypes that have existed for centuries about black women. This is not valid critique. This is not criticism. This is just plain, straight out racist and offensive. And so we, if, if, if the most successful woman athlete on the planet today, one of the wealthiest athletes, one of the most decorated, one of the most respected in her field, can be reduced to this, then what hope do any of the rest of us have? And so I think that is the challenge of the emotional tax. Um, I want to talk about the numbers uh, a little bit before we get into answering some of the questions, because I do think the numbers and, and the data are important. And then I also want to talk about story, because I think story is also important in helping to, to flesh out what, it, what these numbers really mean. So there were three studies that were really the catalyst, um, no pun intended, behind the program that I gave at the Harvard Law School Celebration 65 last week, where we talked about the emotional tax. And the first of them was a study done by Professor David Wilkins at Harvard Law School, who runs the Center on the Legal Profession. And every five years, just as Harvard celebrates women alumni, Harvard celebrates black alumni. After the last black alumni celebration, which was in 2016, Professor Wilkins released a report on the state of black alumni uh, since the last, you know, the first report was done kind of studying the history of blacks at Harvard. This one was an update, basically studying, you know, the cohorts from the years 2000 to the years 2016. And what that study showed in a nutshell was that, you know, Despite all of the diversity and inclusion efforts, despite you know, various initiatives at law firms that have been in existence for years, the state of black alumni is not so great. And among black women in particular, it is especially dire. So you know, he found that, and I'm going to stand up so I can see the figures as well as you can. So only 20% of black women who started practicing law in private practice in, in 2000 were still in private practice in 2016. And that has implications for partnership. Who gets to stay around long enough to make partner, to become those senior leaders, to become the senior leaders in corporate America, and often you know, the major law firms are the feeders for those positions. 
if black women are leaving law firms you know, at, at this rate, that tells you that there's going to be a dearth at the top in corporate America because those women aren't around to actually fill those roles. The, his study also showed that black women Harvard Law School graduates were significantly less satisfied with their careers, especially those who remained in private practice, than, than other, than even black male graduates. And over 50% of the respondents, male and female, reported having been the subject of a racist remark in their workplaces, which again, feeds into this idea of the emotional tax. If you are in your workplace and you are either, you are the subject of a racist remark or racist behavior from your colleagues who are supposed to be helping you, supporting you, promoting you, giving you opportunities for advancement, then again, that will inevitably lead to not only job dissatisfaction, but a desire to leave the law. And in a lot of cases, what we see is these highly credentialed, highly talented, very intelligent people just deciding to check out because they just can't take it emotionally. And I, and I think, you know, we, we joke about women and emotions, but emotions matter. And if your workplace is, is filling you with dread, if you don't want to get up and go to work in the morning, if you spend all your time on guard against that person who's going to say that thing that's just off, that makes you feel like you don't belong, that inevitably will make you not want to stay, and that could decrease your ability to, again, rise to these leadership positions in corporate America. And so that gets to your question about the health of an organization. It is not healthy for an organization to be the type of organization that does not allow for all of its you know, members to be full participants, to feel like they have an equal opportunity at, at advancement and promotion and leadership as everyone else. So another organization that routinely and regularly studies diversity in the legal profession is the National Association on Law Placement. And when I was in law school, we always looked at the NALP numbers to see which law firms were doing better or worse in terms of diversity because we didn't want to go to a place where we were going to be the only one. Well, sadly, what the, the latest NALF report showed was that there hasn't been significant progress. And in fact, since 2009, there's been a real retrenchment in uh, US law firms on diversity. So the NALF report showed, you know, one of their, their findings was that women and minorities remain, in their own words, fairly dramatically underrepresented at US law firms, both at the partnership level and at the associate level. The NALP study showed that overall, black and African Americans and women are not enjoying the increases in their percentages in law firms that they had, had you know, realized before 2009, before the recession. So, we, so those numbers fell at the recession and they've never, we've never caught up. And there are reasons why. You know, one of the reasons is Harvard also has found that you know, law, law school, black law student enrollment ha has plummeted from, you know, the early, the late 90s, late 80s and early 90s. And so if there aren't as many people getting into law schools, then quite naturally you won't have as many out there in the workforce, you know, being associates and eventually rising through the ranks. From a disability rights point of view, the NALP study, you know, said that you know, regardless of race or gender, people with disabilities just aren't seen at major law firms, which is a huge, huge problem. And then the final really dismal, disappointing uh, finding from the NALP study was around leadership. The, the, the numbers of, you know, blacks who are even at the, the partnership ranks of U.S. law firms, and I'm going to put a little asterisk there because this isn't just major U.S. law firms, this is all the U.S. law firms that NALP studies, it's still only 1.83% overall, and only 0.66% are black women. The associate numbers aren't much better, but if you compare the two, what you can see is 4.28% of U.S. associates are black, 
but they're not making it up to the partner rank. So even with those small numbers, there's a precipitous drop when it comes to which of those associates are actually making it through the ranks and making it into those leadership roles within law firms. And so finally, the emotional tax study itself, which was done by an organization called Catalyst. And I think this study is going to help us think about new ways to talk about what's really happening and think about new ways to address the problem. At the Harvard Law School women's event that uh, Rangita was talking about, we had the luxury of having Professor Kimberly Crenshaw speak to us. And she talked about the fact that studies have shown that when you don't have language, when you don't have frames to talk about a problem, it's hard for people to see the problem. And if you only see a problem a certain way, and you don't really have the, the language and the stories to back the facts, then people will just reject the facts. And so, you know, we, we've talked about these numbers ever since I was in law school. These numbers really have not moved very much. So what's really going on in these environments that we haven't throughout all of the years and all the efforts and all the studies and all the data and all the diversity inclusion initiatives, why haven't things changed? I think talking about and thinking about what the emotional tax really means is a way of helping to explain that. So in the Catalyst study, Catalyst you know, interviewed you know, men and women of color and found that about 60% of them reported feeling on guard in their workplaces about issues of, of racial and gender and sexual you know, harassment or discrimination. And so think about what that means. You, know, you are a highly decorated you know, individual. You've done well all your life. You've been a high achiever your whole life. You were a straight A student from grade school onwards. You got into the top law schools in the nation. And you get into this environment, and you might as well be Serena Williams in that cartoon. Somebody is thinking about you, looking at you, judging you, not on the basis of the true quality of your work or your intellect, but based on ideas and stereotypes that they bring to the table that they may not even be fully aware of themselves, but that get used in a way that prevents you from really being able to fully realize your true value. The Catalyst study showed that this is a problem not just for individuals who want to have great careers, but also for their organizations. Because to Rangita's point, if, if these organizations are losing this top talent, and they're either leaving the law altogether, or they're leaving major law firms and, and, and doing other things, they may still be making great contributions but these environments, these organizations are losing out on, on real talent. I also heard this morning us talking about you know, the overall ma macroeconomic loss to the economy, the global economy, of not having diverse participation by every member of society who can participate. And I used to work in the cosmetics industry, and I, I, I want to you know, indulge you with an example real quick. I'm sure most of the women in this room have heard of Fenty Beauty. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> so Fenty was not you know, a product or, or a company started by the company I worked for. But it was like, it should have been a no-brainer. Duh, women wear makeup. Women of all colors wear makeup. We should make makeup that meet the needs of women of all colors. But a lot of companies either weren't doing it or they were doing it, but they weren't promoting it. And they didn't really know how, for some reason, to figure out how to sell different shades of foundations to women who come in different shades. <laughs> and, and that sounds really silly, but it's what was actually happening. So Rihanna, who, you know, she, she's an amazing artist, but her company did the most obvious thing gee, we're going to make 40 shades of foundation, and we're going to show you this foundation on women of 40 different shades. And we're going to actually show you what the foundation looks like on the darkest women that it serves 
So in your head, you can think, well, gee, if Gabby Sidibe can wear Fenty Beauty, there's got to be a shade in there for me. You know, if, if there's a shade for Gabby and there's a shade for, you know, someone on the other end of the spectrum and there's 40 shades, you know, ding, you know, the light bulb comes on. And, and instead of only having five shades in the darker range and 35 shades of eggshell, there were... <laughs> There was a shade range that actually matched the shade ranges that human skin colors come in. Wow, who would have thought? But it was like a game changer. And, you know, Fenty came out before I left my old company, and people were shook. They're like, oh my God, Fenty. And I'm like, hello? You know, black women at this company have been saying this in one way or another for years. And it took the competitor doing it and the competitor taking market share, and the competitor getting all of this free publicity from all these women on Instagram posting their own pictures of Fenty for the light bulbs to come on. How much money did cosmetic companies along the way throw down the drain by not doing that simple thing of just addressing the needs of the women that they should be selling their products to? And so, that again is the emotional tax because when you're in this environment and you see an unmet need and you know that if you just just put it out there you know like that old you know, movie if you build it they will come and nobody wants to build it because nobody really thinks that your perspective is as valid as the perspective of others that does something to you psychically and so that again is the emotional tax and so leaders of, these, of our organizations really have to find new ways to think about what diversity and inclusion really mean, what's really happening in their organizations, and how to avoid losing all of this great talent that's out there and instead tapping into it and, and taking advantage of it and the economic returns that they'll get from doing so. So, I want to talk about myself for a little bit and just tell you a little bit of story about my background and you know, who I am. So I am from the city of Detroit. My parents are from Mississippi. I'm a black American. As, as I used to joke with my friends, I'm black mixed with black. <laughs> I, I grew up in this country uh, in a city that was predominantly black. And in my community, People like me were commonplace. You know, my parents, you know, were products of the Great Migration. My father was a factory worker. My mother was a homemaker. They believed very strongly in education. All six of us were encouraged to go as high as we could. And they didn't have, you know, the background to necessarily tell us how to, how to do it. They, they couldn't introduce us into their networks, but they were strong believers in education and hard work and the value of both of those things. And it wasn't until I left Detroit that I discovered that people around the country didn't really understand that about the city that I grew up in and the city I loved. Because there were all these other stories being told about black people. There are all these stories being told that you know, Detroit in particular was, was just the murder capital and it was full of people who were gangbangers and you know, who didn't want to work and who were just sitting around looking for handouts. And I was like, I don't recognize that because that's not how I grew up. And you know, it's, I think it's really possible and easy to be in this country and, and not realize that African Americans are not that picture of Sigmarine Williams. African Americans are not you know, people sitting around waiting for handouts, that, that we have a strong, proud tradition in our communities of education and hard work and achievement. And so if you, will, if you don't know those communities and you don't know people from those communities, and you are a leader in an organization, and you hire someone like me, and you don't know anything about the community I come from, or the hard work I had to do to get where I am, and all you, you've heard about people like me is that you know, we sit around looking for handouts, and if, and if we made it into some great college program, it's all because of affirmative action, or somebody gave us a placement somewhere that we didn't really earn, 
then maybe no matter how anti-racist you are, you may have voted for Obama you know, 10 times if he could have run 10 times, but that's not going to stop you from somewhere in the back of your head thinking maybe I have to look at this person's work a little bit more closely. And so the first time I had the experience of having someone judge me not on the, on the quality of what I was doing, but based on their own ingrained stereotypes was in college. As I said, I was a first-generation college graduate. I went to the University of Michigan, which is 45 minutes from home, but a world apart from where I grew up. And within the first couple of weeks of school, and I'm sure all the black people in this room are going to be like, yeah, this happened to me too. You know, I had a professor basically accuse me, accuse me of plagiarism because my paper was too good because she had never seen a student from Detroit. And I knew when she said Detroit, Detroit was code for black. She hadn't seen papers from students from Detroit that were this good. And she didn't outright accuse me of plagiarizing the paper, but she said enough that I knew that's where she was going. So I asked her outright, are you accusing me of, of plagiarizing this paper and not actually having produced this work? And of course she backpedaled and said, no, 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 no. I'm, 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 just, I'm just wondering. And so I, I didn't have a legacy of you know, family to draw upon, but I did have the legacy of having been my parents' daughter. And they didn't take it and I wasn't gonna take it either. So I marched right to the dean of that department and I said, this thing happened, and I need for it not to happen again. Because I'm gonna be here for four years, and I cannot for four years have somebody second guessing every single thing I do. And so, I thank my parents for instilling in me the, the strength, the fortitude, the backbone to know what to do, because I didn't really know what to do, but I knew what to do. And that has served me, but the stakes are a little bit lower when you're a freshman in college than they are when you are, coming to my next story, up for partnership at, at, your, at your law firm, a, a, a law firm that you've enjoyed working at where you, know, you really want to be the first black partner in the New York office and your opportunity is here and you're, you know, this is your partner review year and some things happen. So what happened to me was, the year that I was up for partnership review at my, at my former law firm, I had two racist clients. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it and say that maybe it was racist or maybe it was racial or all the euphemisms for racism that we use in the newspaper today. They were racist and their behavior towards me demonstrated that that was, I, you know, I'm convinced a fact. One, one client had spoken to him on the phone for weeks. He had no issues with anything I said for weeks when I spoke to him on the phone. Then he met me. He was reluctant to shake my hand. He visibly jumped startled when he saw me. And from that moment on, I could do no right. Everything I did, everything I said had to be second guessed and reviewed by uh, the partner, the senior partner I was working with. We had to bring another white male associate onto the deal because he just didn't trust any of the advice he was getting from me. And you know, one of those in your partner review year would be enough, but I had two. The second guy was a guy who it was, I was working with, a, with an associate and the associate and I would call the client and the client would call the white male associate. The white male associate was smart enough to say, okay, we've got to get Carolyn, and he would always bring me in, but this kept happening over and over and over again, to the point that it was clearly not accidental. And so if you don't recognize that there's some other stuff going on that has nothing to do with the quality of my work, I could see the partner saying, you know, this is not someone who's demonstrating leadership. This is not someone who's inspiring client confidence. This is someone who maybe isn't ready to be partner. So in that moment, when I, when I saw that my, my chance might have been slipping away, I decided to take a great risk to myself, the same action I had done you know, years ago in college, and I went to the partner who was going to be sponsoring me for partner review, and I laid it all out. And like Serena in that moment when she was you know, about to lose the US Open, I was emotional. 
I was angry. I was in tears. I was crying. I was pointing my finger and jabbing my finger at him, and I'm tears streaming down my face as I'm telling him all this stuff that I've had to endure. And I said, it would be, you can't hold this against me. It's not my fault. You know my work. You know that associates like working with me. You know that, that I, there's nothing I could do to have overcome this. What's happening to me is, is disgusting, and I'm trying to get by anyway. I'm trying to just come in and do my job, and I know that perceptions could be formed, and if they're formed against me, it's not right and it's not fair. And so when I walked out, I didn't really know what was going to happen. There was a possibility that that could have been the end of it. I could have been asked at any point to leave. I could have been, to, you know, could have, you know, the partnership review could have gone against me, and I would have been asked to leave the firm. But I didn't feel like I could look myself in the mirror if I hadn't confronted it and at least said my piece. Fortunately, in that case, you know, it, it worked out, but it doesn't always work out. And so, and so what I want to leave you with is that when you find yourself in these situations, your response will vary depending on what circumstance you're in. Sometimes you just got to suck it up. It's hard. It's terrible. It hurts. You might be sucking it up while you're, you know, furiously on LinkedIn looking for the next thing so you can get out. But sometimes, you know, you may not be in a position to just walk out. Sometimes you have the luxury of saying no. I don't have to deal with this anymore. And when you do, you can take your talents and your skills somewhere else where they will be appreciated. I'm going to leave you with one, one last story, and then I want to make sure we have time for Q&A. And this is actually, well, there's two stories. One story is my friend's story, and then there's one story that, that's my story. But I, I, I like this one because I think it's funny, although it's kind of ridiculous. So my friend's story is a story about a woman I know, again, went to some of the best schools in the country, one of the smartest people I've ever met, is working at a job that she really enjoys. She likes the company, she likes her boss, she likes the work she's doing, it, the environment, everything is satisfying You know what she was looking for. She's talking to her boss one day, and her boss says to her, you know, I thought you'd be you know, pretty good at this, but I'm really surprised you're as good as you are. And when she told me the story, we both looked at each other kind of like, he said that? Like, I went to, you know, these schools. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I was, you know, you know I've, I've had titles. You know, why would you not think I would be good? Like, why are you planting that seed of doubt in my mind? So, so what does that tell me? The next, if I ever make a mistake, then you go back and say, yeah, that's kind of what I expected. There was a, another unconscious bias study that some of you may be familiar with where um, the study involved a memo that was written deliberately with typos and mistakes. And a group of partners at a law firm were given the same memo. One group was told that it was written by a white associate. One group was told that, that it was written by a black associate. The same memo was judged much more harshly when the partners thought it was written by a black associate than it was when it was written by a white associate. Same memo, same typos, same mistakes. Some of the comments from the partners who thought the memo was written by a black associate were, this person isn't really ready, this person you know, you know, needs, needs more, more time, this person you know, maybe you know, shouldn't be in this environment. The white associate, oh, this person has, has great skills, this person is, is really thoughtful, this person, you know, and they spotted the typos, but, eh, you know, give them benefit of the doubt, you know, people miss things. And so that's, again, the emotional tax. You know, what is it put in your head when your work is being judged, not because of the actual quality of what it is you do, but because of perceptions and biases that the, per the person may not even be aware of, but that they carry with them because there's been a history in this country of stories that have been told about people who look like me that aren't true. So what can you do? 
apart from leveraging your, your options when you have them, I think it's important to, to be aware and, and, and to speak up when you can, when you can't speak up, to think about what, you, what alternatives you might have, to leverage your networks. You know, it, it has been a great source of comfort and strength for me to leverage my law school networks and also to have a reserve of people that I can, can just ask the dumb questions of. You know, when I was going through some things at one of my other law firm jobs, I remember talking, I had a friend who had been a summer associate mentor to me. And it was a different firm, but I knew he was experienced in the environment. And I called him and I said, I don't know if this is racism or sexism. He says, it doesn't matter. It's making you unhappy. You need to do something about it. And so have those people who can, who can give you you know, the hard advice, the, the, the clear-eyed advice, the necessary advice. But also know that your mentors may not look like you. One of the biggest champions, the guy who, who championed me at my old law firm was a, a white male British guy who worked, you know, from the day I was a summer associate until the day I left the firm. He, he, he was my guy, he was my, he was my go-to. And he was hard to work for, and he was demanding, but he was fair. And he was the one who told me, gave me the best career advice I've ever had. He said to me, this is your career. I can't tell you what it is you need to do to achieve what you want to achieve, because I don't know what that is. You have, to take, you have to take ownership. You have to take charge. You have to figure out what it is you're trying to do. And if you tell me this is what you're trying to do, I can help you get those opportunities, but I can't, I can't I can't make this up for you. You've got, to, you've got to chart your own course. And that has stuck with me. And so I would encourage you to, to think about networks that are networks of people who are your friends, networks of people who, who may be potential job sources, networks of people who are just people you, you respect and admire, who, who have done great things you know, in your professional field, who you might want to be able to, to call upon one day. And if you reach out to someone and they seem receptive, you know, keep those connections going. Take people out, out for coffee. You know, call people, just send, send a note every now and again. Stay in touch. Um, but don't be afraid to reach out to people who may not share your background, who may not share, you know, your, your particular, who may not even be in law but somebody who's taken, who's taken an interest in you because that person might be the person who really helps you build your career to where you want to go. Thank you, Caroline, for that impassioned appeal to our new generation of women leaders. And with that, I'm going to call one of our most talented students at Law, Nicole Smith, who is a JD MBA student, with your same aspirations and ambitions, uh, Caroline. And you've blazed a trail for women leaders like Nicole. So Nicole, will you come here and serve as the discussion leader and ask some hard questions? And I saw your bio that you're going to my law firm, so that's awesome. Great. Um, hi. I wanted to first thank you for coming to speak with us. I think it is great that you shared uh, this information and your story, and it's really helpful. Um, I wanted to start with a quick anecdote and a question. Um, before coming here, I worked in investment banking uh, for a couple of years, and one of the only African-American women in position of power, a Bola, a Nigerian woman, she became a mentor for me. And I asked her about her journey, and she said, you know, when I came to this bank, I started in the back office. I was picking up the phones, and she had her natural hair. It was an a Afro natural um, short, and she was looking to move up to a front office position. And they said, Bola, she's great. She does everything perfectly, but she doesn't fit the look. Um, Bola heard this feedback and got extensions and was promoted to front office. Um, she's in this role, and fast forward 14 years, she's managing director at a big bank, and that is great. Mm -hmm. um, in this position of power, she was thinking, I want to get nat go to natural hair. Um, as an adult, as a grown woman, she felt the need to go ask her bosses, is this okay? 
and they told her, um, I would strongly advise you against that. Um, and she followed the rules and she played the game and she's still in this position of power at this big bank. And so my question to you is, what is or how do you reconcile the tension between wanting the success and the, the need to dilute yourself in these spaces to get there as a way to help people coming behind uh, to, to, get, uh, to get these positions of power and have a seat at the table, or fighting the fight of saying, I'm going to stick to who I am, but really jeopardizing a potential future in the C-suite or whatever uh, great position that you want to be in? Right. So I think, um, first of all, you don't always have to you know, straighten your hair or get extensions. Sometimes you do. But you know, I've managed to you know, be okay. And um, I was actually at, at K&E when I first went fully natural and I got twist. And you know, I had a few people that were like, oh, okay, yeah. But that was an environment where nobody really cared what was, what was, coming, what was on my head as long as what was coming out of my head was, was, was good. But every environment isn't like that. Um, so I do think you have to judge you know, your environment and how much you want to be a part of that environment. And so I would never tell somebody that it's wrong to make the choice your friend made. I think you know, for her, that was obviously the choice that on balance was the right choice for her. For someone else, it might not be the right choice. For someone else, they may decide, you know, being able to come in here and be my whole complete self is more important to me than being managing director. And so I, I think those are value judgments that each of us have to make for, them, for herself. And each of us may make those value judgments a little bit differently. I've chosen personally that you know, th th this is the least I can do. You know, I, I come in, I, I dress professionally, I, I comport myself with professionalism, but I ain't, I ain't relaxing my hair no more. I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. And so if that's what it takes to work here, nah, relaxers and me didn't get along, so I'm not doing that. But that's my choice. Um, I'll do one more question and think I'll open it up to everyone else. Uh, can you just talk about self-care and just really managing the space should you choose to say or if you're unable to find an environment that's very accepting of you, how do you take care of yourself and kind of deal with this emotional attack so that, I mean, obviously I think you wouldn't be able to, to be your best self at the firm, but even on a personal level, just being able to live your life and, and, be, and find that happiness that I think we all deserve. I think one of the most, well, I'm going to be very, very candid. I have a therapist. I've had a therapist for the last 13 years. She's a godsend. If anything happened to her, I don't know what I would do. And every time I've had a thought that maybe I'm ready to graduate from therapy, uh-uh. <laughs> so that's, that was one of the things that, that has been my self-care. Every week, I, I download it. Sometimes we go in there, we talk about insecure. It's not, it's not always heavy. But sometimes we, I go in there and you know, there's been a death in the family, there's been, been something you know, at work I can't really navigate, there, there's some heavy stuff. I keep it going. Um, I think it's, you know, other, for other people it's, it's a spiritual relationship. For other people it's having a hobby. I'm also a writer, so writing is, is something I do that satisfies my creative spirit in a way that allows me to go into to these environments where I get to be creative but in a different way, but I feel fulfilled if I'm able to then fulfill the rest of my creativity through writing. I think you just have to find whatever it is. Some people you know, become marathon runners, but, but you know, th there are different ways. I think the important lesson is there ha you've got to find that something and you have to commit to doing that thing for yourself. Because otherwise, jobs and, and families and other things can consume you to the point that you kind of lose yourself. That's great. Um, I guess I'll open it up for questions. Um, the mic is back here. Right here. Hello. Thank you uh, so much um, for all that you said. Um, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at your slides, hearing what you're saying. Um, I have been an attorney for 24 years. And I am one of four African-American female partners in the city of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. The other three are my very good friends. Mm -hmm. 
These slides have been shown over the past 24 years. Mm -hmm. yep. And it's not to minimize what's on these slides, but I feel like I need to, to I've, I've really had a lot of time to really think about these things. And you, it's funny, you call this emotional tax. Um, I called it a few years ago. I said I'm having diversity fatigue mm -hmm. because I'm really tired of being the only one in the room. And this isn't even just at the law firm level. I'm on boards. I'm tired of being in the microcosm of percentage of anybody of color on a board. Mm -hmm. And so in reflecting on all these things and considering the audience, um, I would say to you, first and foremost, know your value, okay? Mm -hmm. You did not get where you are today by mistake and by being stupid. You need to remember that. You will, not you may, you will have people that will come at you and make you feel like you don't have much to offer. But you must stand firm on who you are. And you made the comment, the question was asked about self-care. Self um, and I come from a, a very spiritual background, and I think to the advantage of those that have underestimated me, um, they're very lucky that I do, and that I come from a long, a long generation of clergy where I have, and I'm a PK times too, my mother and my father, and grandparents. So, um, but I say that to say that don't pick up other people's baggage. Please understand that. But remember who you are. I used to say, so my background, just really quickly, is I'm an intellectual property attorney. I have two science degrees, one in biology, one in pharmacy. And I had a full career as a clinical pharmacologist before even going to law school. So I've been out of law school for 24 years. So um, I hope I look a lot younger than I, than I appear. Um, and so I've been a patent attorney. And I used to always say, give me the opportunity, and I'll show you what I can do. And I think that because I had that specialized background that I was given the opportunity, because frankly in that practice there aren't a whole lot of people with that background. They don't care what you look like and so on, they'll give you the opportunity. And I showed them what I could do. Yeah. I think in my entire career I was an associate for five years. And then I got plucked in house from a client because I always did my best work. And I knew my stuff. And then I became the client. And then I left the company. And when I left the company, I went back to a law firm practice with a ginormous book of business saying, I want to be a partner. And if you expect that work from all these firms is going to be transferred to me wherever I land, you know, understand that. But even with that, you know, I had one guy was going to interview with the firm. He thought I was there interviewing for a secretarial position. Mm -hmm. Then when we finally got to lunch and, you know, we're walking over and I was talking to some of the other partners about my background, you know, um, he asked me um, when I was telling him a little bit about the things that I did growing up, he says, oh, are your parents educated? So these are some of the things that you run into, but I need you to understand that you will find people like that and also connect with one another and find mentors and sponsors. There's tons of people out there that want to do something to help you, but they are not gonna come looking for you. If someone offers, you need to go reach out to them. And it's about navigating the whole way. And, and things are doable, it's not easy, but it's definitely doable. So thank you so much for your- I wholeheartedly agree, thank you. Hi, um, so I wrote my question down because it's kind of long. I didn't want to forget it. <laughs> so uh, my name is Melissa. I'm currently an undergrad here at Penn with interest of going to law school. Um, and just like a little background, I'm a first generation American. My parents immigrated here from Mexico. Um, neither of them finished high school. So doing the whole Penn thing has been like a learning experience. Um, but much like your parents, they really instilled like the value of education and hard work into me. Um, and so I was a great student in high school. I'm still a pretty good student now. Um, but something that I faced in high school and still face now when I go back to home, um, where the community is, is all very similar in that we were all either the first to go to college or didn't go to college um, from my high school, is that I, I learned to read really fast and I read well and then my classmates were always like, why are you so white? Like, it's, you speak Spanish white, you speak English white, you, you are white and like, that was kind of imposed on me so 
because the general idea was that like you couldn't be Latina and be educated. Um, and so I guess my question is like, how has your relationship with your community in Detroit changed over time? Um, and how have you ever experienced that like disparity or that like disconnect of like now since you have all these degrees and this position and you know you know these people and you dress this way and you talk this way like um, has anyone ever like made you feel like you weren't a part of that community anymore? That's a really great question. And so I think that you know, generationally, you know, those of us who, like me, are, are the first generation descendants of you know, the great migration, I think for, for that cohort, you know, our parents were so focused on us doing better than them, having more opportunity than they could have, that there, that there was, at least in my experience, a lot of teasing about you know talking white or acting white because everybody's parents was pushing them as hard as they could, but I've seen it more so with with my with my kids' generation where you know they're trying really hard you know so I've given my kids a certain you know lifestyle and a certain level of education and and you know environment, and then they feel that they have to you know act a certain way to fit in, you know, a certain place. So, so I do think that that's a real, a real thing. I think some of those people who, who might say that to you are either secretly envious or they admire you and they don't quite know how to express it. And, and so I, I think what I would, would remind you again is that when, you know, sometimes people say stuff because they don't really know how to fully express what they're really feeling or they're afraid to express what they're feeling so they, they kind of attack or say negative things. But what they're really feeling is, wow, you know, it's amazing that she was able to do all this. So I would just say handle it with grace, as I'm sure you do, and don't let it penetrate and you know, you know your community, you know, you know your value, you know your worth, you know how you feel about the community you grew up in. You know that you don't think that you're above them, but you are entitled to achieve everything that you are going to achieve in your life, and don't let anybody t tell you otherwise. Hi, um, thank you so much for coming. This has been really informative. Um, I'm a graduate of both the Penn undergrad and Penn Law School. Um, and I clerked last year, and now I'm about to start at a big firm. I wanted to hear a little bit more about imposter syndrome and how you kind of dealt with that in your early career and how you move forward from that. We've talked a lot today about just how we have been made to feel certain kinds of ways from other people, and I just wanted to know about your experience with imposter syndrome. So, um... You know, I, I mentioned the, the situation with the gentleman who, who just sort of jumped when he saw me. That was probably the first time where I, was start, where I started to feel like, well, gee, you know, do I really deserve to be a partner if this is how the clients are going to react to me? Um, I was fortunate in, in that I had a lot of support up to that point from, you know, the partners I worked with. So I didn't really feel like an imposter. There was always somebody, you know, giving me really good feedback on, on my work, um, giving me harsh but but fair and, and useful and valuable feedback on my work so that I always felt like I was improving. And so um, I didn't feel like an imposter at some point because I knew that my work was just steadily getting better and better and better. But I will say that there have been times in, in my in the course of my career, where maybe I wasn't a hundred percent certain about whether I knew exactly how to handle a situation, and so there was an at my at my old company, I was um, working directly with the chief information officer, and you know it was, it was an it was an area of the law that I had sort of dabbled in a little bit at my law firm, but I hadn't really done run those deals. So I was relying pretty heavily on outside counsel. And the CIO just said to me, I don't want to talk to him. I want to talk to you. I want you to give me the answer. And 
you know, that was kind of rocked me on my heels a little bit because I was relying on this other person because I didn't feel confident, but then it made me realize, no, it's your job to advise the CIO. It's not outside counsel's job. And you're, if, if you get too reliant, A, you're wasting the company's money, but you're also not demonstrating that, that leadership that you want it. You want it to be in this position. Now you're here and you're running to, to, you know, to another white man to you know, bolster you up and make you feel better. So I took that and I said, you know, he's right. And I'm going to you know, dig into this area and make sure I really understand it now and only go to the outside when I really need the outside expertise. But he's right. The, the stuff he's asking me, I should be able to answer these questions for him. So I don't know if that's a full answer to your question, but sometimes, sometimes you have to own it and say, you know what, maybe, maybe I got more work to do and then go do the work so you can make sure that you're 100% prepared. Um, that's great. I also just, I know we're running up on the end of our time here, but if you could just leave us with a, some words of encouragement and then lastly, just kind of talk about, you mentioned the Fenty Beauty and this line coming out and you know, it was really a moment for women of color. I mean, it was, it was a moment of victory. What does that look like in the legal profession and the business profession, this moment of victory where we say, aha, like, look at this missed opportunity. Look at us as a community. Look at us growing and thriving, and we did this ourselves. Right. I think one of the things, and law firms are really going to have to rethink their whole business model because there's so much retrenchment going on in the legal profession right now. Companies don't want to hire big law firms you know, the way they used to. They're building their own in-house practices, and they're even cutting back their own in-house practices for cost cutting. So the whole, you know, the, the old model of you know, the law firm just you know, gets the client and keeps the client for years and years, that, that model's dead. So I think law firms are going to have to be a little bit more experimental and entrepreneurial in a way that they really hadn't been. When I was you know, a young associate, I was told flat out, you know, I, I had friends who were doing startup businesses, people I knew from Harvard Business School who you know, would call me and say, well, you know, gee, I'm, looking, I'm you know, thinking about doing X, Y, Z. Do you think you know, the firm and the firm was just saying, we have a threshold and you know, your, your buddy isn't going to meet our threshold. I think law firms are going to have to open that up and think more entrepreneurial because I, you know, I did meet a young, uh, well, an older gentleman at one law firm I, I was a summer associate for, where the firm had basically allowed him to grow up with his clients. You know, he was a you know, business school, law school grad, his friends are business school grads. They all went out and started their own businesses. The firm let him, you know, he had to do firm work too, but they let him kind of nurture this portfolio of his, his buddies who were entrepreneurs and most of them blew up. And that became his book of business. And it was a sizable book of business. But it all came from the firm having the foresight to say, we're going to let him do this. There was another guy in, in the patent group at, at K&E in Chicago who had a friend in the early days of you know, electronic you know, slot machines. He had a patent on them. And he sold his patent and started a business. And the firm let this guy represent his friend, essentially, and that blew up. So I think, law, I think one thing law firms need to do is let young black associates or young associates of color who, don't, who aren't going to have those deep connections in GM, but who may have friends who are entrepreneurs, who are doing startups, who are doing different things, to let them you know, incubate and, and, and nurture those clients, because that's really where that next you know, book of law firm business is going to come from. You know, the, the GMs and the Estee Lauders and the BNY Mellons, you know, we're kind of tapped out. <laughs> we're trying to cut back. So you have to th I think law firms are going to have to think of new business models, and maybe that's the new Fenty Beauty for law firms. No, that's great. So just on that comment, I have a last uh, question to you. So what is the weight of responsibility that you carry as being this purple unicorn? You know, you were just talking about this, you know, new, innovative, entrepreneurial, black, uh, trailblazers, giving them the opportunity to do this, but then they also carry the weight of being, you know, carrying the history of and the destiny of black America on their shoulders, and that's a huge burden to carry. It is, and I think, you know, to your point earlier, you, you can't carry too much. 
Like, we, we are not representative of the whole. We are each individuals with our own lives, our own choices, our own everything. And it's not fair to make you or me or you or any of us represent our race, our culture, our community in a way that nobody else has to. So own that to the extent that you want to, but don't let somebody put that on you if it's not yours. And allow yourself to be and demand the right to be seen and viewed and judged as your individual whole full self and nothing more than that. Last words from you, Nicole. No, this is all great. I think that um, we should continue the dialogue as we see each other and just create these spaces within whatever space that we're in and seek out. And then you mentioned not everyone looks like you, but there are allies and we have each other and really kind of cultivating, hey, what are you doing to get by, checking in on each other, um, and really just doing the best we can uh, for ourselves and for our career. Thank you so much. Thank you.